From the journeys of belonging to blackness, blackness. I'm India Lorik Wilmot. Nobody else can do this job. You're listening to the podcast, Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. It's season three, and I am excited to have today's guest join us. In this episode, I am in conversation with Janelle Hobson, professor and chair of the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, as well as the director of both Undergraduate Studies and the Honors Program, all at the University at Albany. As a Black feminist scholar, Janelle's publications focus on representations and histories of women in the African diaspora. She has written books and edited collections, including the book Venus in the Dark, Blackness and Beauty in Popular Culture, Body as Evidence, Mediating Race, Globalizing Gender, Are All the Women Still White, Rethinking Race, Expanding Feminism, The Rutilage Companion to Black Women's Cultural Histories, and special volumes on Harriet Tubman and slavery in popular culture. Janelle is also a contributing writer to Miss Magazine, and you can find her articles published across various online platforms. Later this month, Janelle's book, When God Lost Her Tongue, Historical Consciousness and the Black Feminist Imagination, will be available through Rutledge. Today, we are here to learn all about who Janelle is as a scholar writer, what is the Black feminist imagination, and what happens when God lost her tongue. Welcome, Janelle. Thank you for having me, India. Well, folks who are loyal fans and listeners of this podcast know that I am especially intrigued by creatives whose works intend to recenter, amplify, and edify African-descended voices, identities, and personhood. So knowing this, it is fitting that I have you on the show to discuss your most recent book, When God Lost Her Tongue, and your personal journey to do this work. So are you ready? Yep. All right, let's get into it. Right about now. Act one, call to adventure. This is a breakdown. So as a writer and public scholar, your books and articles attempt to give life and sound to the perspectives and experiences of African-descended women, from people like Sarah Bartman and Harriet Tubman to Beyonce, through a close study of Black aesthetic, history, science, and medicine. So how did you become interested in doing the work you do today? Um, It's interesting you would ask me, because now I have to really get into a journey of this work. So I think just as a Black woman, I was really excited to see that I could actually focus on uh, Black womanhood as as a topic for study. I remember when I was an undergraduate student at the University of Georgia, and I had a really uh, life-changing course taught by Professor Barbara McCaskill. It was on 19th century African-American women's autobiography. And that just opened up a whole world for me. In what ways were you taking classes similar to this one? At that point, I was an English major. I did graduate as an English major. And uh, at the time, I started out as a journalism major, but then switched because I really loved literature so much. And up until taking that class, it was the, the usual canon, Shakespeare and British romantic poets and, you know, American writers like Emily Dickinson. I mean, those were like the focus of the work. So one semester, I was looking for another 19th century course to take because it was part of my major requirements. And this was a class that was open. 
And I said, 19th century African-American women's autobiographies? I didn't even know that Black women were writing in the 19th century. So it piqued my interest. You know, just the quote, that famous quote from Django and Chain, you had my curiosity. (laughs) But once I really got into it, it really got my attention. Now, in this course, what were some of the things that you were reading in comparison to those other classes? We were studying like Harriet Jacobs' Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. We were reading Francis E. W. Harper's poetry. I mean, there was just so much I was exposed to. So that just changed everything. And was it this experience that led to your graduate studies and your pursuits post-college? The same professor actually recommended me for uh, the PhD in Women's Studies at Emory University. They were starting out fairly recently in terms of the 90s when I started my graduate work. And I was like, okay, I thought about doing PhD work and thought about doing doctoral studies in English, but this was an opportunity to really focus on women. Oh, and that's pretty neat. It's nice to be able to combine your studies with your passions and with your interests all in one. I was able to do my women's studies PhD, and eventually I chose to do a dissertation on Sarah Bartman, The Hot and Top Venus. That became my first book, Venus in the Dark. I also was able to start a position in women's studies at the University at Albany, where now women's gender sexuality studies, and I am currently chairing the department. So it's been quite a journey, and I'm just really, I feel privileged and blessed to be able to focus uh, much of my research and teaching on issues of Black women in the diaspora. So it's quite telling, too, in terms of just the importance of education and the things that our professors and teachers expose to us. Because as you even indicated for yourself, those experiences are life changing and it opens up a whole new world and perspective where it even changed your own personal and professional trajectory. You know, in addition to having that Hallmark course that changed everything for you, was there something, if you were to think back to your childhood a person or a situation that motivated you to amplify these types of stories? I'm definitely influenced by my mother, who is an avid reader. She's a nurse. She's actually a retired nurse, I should say. And she herself has also written um, a few books of her own. She's working on a new book on her experience as a nurse. But, you know, in the in the in my childhood, she was buying me all of the abridged children's literature books and childcraft and bought me Judy Bloom. So she nurtured my reading. I saw her reading all the time. So I know that's a huge influence. And then other other women in my family, my grandmother, my great aunt, I actually dedicate my book, this book, When God Lost the Tank, to those women in my family because of the ways they've been able to keep stories alive. It's nice to hear about your family's experiences around storytelling, keeping narratives alive. Please tell the audience, where's your family from? Uh, my family, they're from the Caribbean island of, of Nevis, uh, which is part of St. Kitts and Nevis. I also spent my early childhood there. So I'm coming from that background of rich oral traditions. So combining the oral with the written really nurtured the kind of interest that I have in storytelling in general. Being able to see myself as a Black woman represented in not just literature, but art 
art and film, because I also explore those issues in God Lost Her Tongue, has just been really edifying. Why is it important to amplify these stories? It's a really an important way, I think, to be able to just place us at the center, because we're always so marginalized in other people's stories. And when you actually put the onus on us, you, you're able to really magnify so many interesting different perspectives, as well as you can tell a story very differently. And I think what's interesting, particularly since you also have a literature background as well, that I think sometimes we have a sweet spot or a niche where we like to sometimes stay where, mm. wherever those boundaries are within our professional um, spaces. And I think what's lovely about your work, about your books, as well as the articles that you publish, is that you also make or you create these bridges between the past so you're going back to the 18th century or even further back and looking at Black aesthetics and linking it to present day. And I think that's really helpful and important, particularly when you're in the classroom with students and you're working with community folks. Sometimes people don't have the same kind of access to understanding how far back some of these issues may show up and prevail. And that leads to the marginalization of the voices that you're talking about. And then bringing it forward to say, well, yeah, you saw that you know recent VMA award. Well, when you know, Chloe and Hallie did this performance and Beyonce did this, they're hearkening back to this other thing and people are sort of mind blown. I see it as a continuum because that's really what I think is, is, is helpful. And when I say continuum, like you mentioned how I can talk about when Beyonce, you know, does this, you know, invocation of Oshun or Queen Bee, she's, you know, going back to this earlier tradition of African goddesses and loas. I'm not trying to create an analogy, as sometimes people like to do this analogy, like, oh, prison system is just like slavery, which is problematic. As a historian, you have to recognize that, you know, things are very specific to their historical context. But when I make those kinds of comparisons, I think of it more as a continuum, not so much as an analogy, so that we can recognize that certain elements, certain aesthetics that we are making manifest in our own present day, that it has has roots that we can hark back to. It's just the recognition of, you know, these are the roots, these are the foundations. And I think that's helpful. So that way we can see that we're building on this, not necessarily creating some kind of false comparison or analogy or parallel. In your book, When God Lost Her Tongue, you do a really great job drawing the reader's attention to the ways African descendants across the diaspora may opt to combine both colonial teachings with those passed down through the ancestors. In different chapters, you talk about perhaps even the motivations of doing that. Maybe sometimes the motivations are based on survival or economic opportunity, mm. or even that these motivations are actually intentional subversions, yes. or perhaps seen as a mode of remembrance of ancestors. So by your own account, you discuss this tension existing even within your own family around their spiritual and religious beliefs. Mm -hmm. So how do you personally contend with this duality or maybe this tension? Well, I think that's just the story of Black people, <laughs> you know. I mean, I guess you can go back to W.B. Du Bois, who calls it double consciousness, uh, or even Vivek Clark talks about Marasa consciousness when she draws on Haitian uh, voodoo ideology. This idea that we're always holding, you know, some kind of colonial worldview and syncretizing it with an African worldview, I think that's the story of Black people wherever you find us. And that was definitely 
definitely part of what I was working through when I was writing this book. So then would you say the title of your book, When God Lost Her Tongue, is a type of metaphor? When God Lost Her Tongue is a metaphor for how, as Black women, we've been silenced, but somehow we find a way to speak through that silence, even without our tongues. And I'm also joined specifically from the story told about the Wakama ceremony that Haitians say, you know, this is what led to the Haitian uprising, eventually leading to their independence as the first free Black republic in the world. So wait, before you go on, can you give our audience a little bit more context, some history? The story behind that has been told so many times, both from white a white settler perspective and local Haitian perspective. But there is a voodoo loa, uh, Urzuli Danto, who is associated with that whole ceremony. And it is her spirit that rises and causes the enslaved who, who gathered for that ceremony to rise up against their enslavers and actually make a claim for their freedom through bloodshed. And so that same goddess loses her tongue. Her tongue is cut out later on during the revolution. Like we can start stuff, but then it's like, okay, now you got to go back. (laughs) You woman, now you need to, now you need to be quiet. And in ceremonial spaces, you know, Ursula Dento is present because someone who is possessed by her will start mumbling and speaking in ways that doesn't make any sense. That mumbling is supposed to be representative of her not having her tongue, but still making noise. So, you know, she's there. And that's, I think is just what black women's history is about. It's about making noise. I think that really represents the kind of combining of the both the colonial, the patriarchal presence that has tried to silence you and then the, the, the oppositional consciousness that always pushes back against that. And you talk about this in the beginning of your book, the ways in which the colonial teachings have informed African way of thinking and veneration. When you talk about it with your own family, where you have folks who are just like, oh, we believe in ghosts, we don't believe in ghosts, or here are what spirits mean. And I also think about the fact that you also talk about yourself being a daughter, being a niece, being a friend, and embodying all these different kinds of positions. How do you then contend with, okay, this is what I learned with in my family context and I've witnessed. Mm-hmm. This is how I choose to make noise because you talk about making noise yourself, right? But then how do you manifest and celebrate the divine within the midst of all of this? Well, you know, I wrote about that in the introduction of the book about the different interpretations of ghosts and hauntings. And in an Afro-Caribbean perspective, at least from my island, Nevis, the idea of jumbies, that are these spirits that are that manifest themselves. There are certain Christians in the family who don't believe in that. Or if, if they do believe those ghosts appear, they believe it's from the devil. So there is that demonization. I'm talking about Haitian voodoo. So of course we know that religion has been demonized within and among Black communities. There are those who practice and those who know of it. But there is a way in which we always talk about it as if it's something dark. In the book, I I want us to kind of reevaluate what does the dark mean, especially since as Black people, we've been, been associated with the dark, whether it's our skin or even our cultures or our religious practices. We are always that dark presence, that Black presence, Toni Morrison calls it the Africanist presence. We have learned to be afraid of it. And I think when we are able to reevaluate and rethink it and redefine it, we have an opportunity to say, okay, so what about the dark that is so problematic? And you do this in the book. 
in the epilogue, I realized that I started out with this metaphor when God lost her tongue. So already I was asserting a kind of black feminine presence for a divine being, the supreme deity, rather than just focus on the white male God that's in the Western imagination. And obviously I'm not the first black feminist to refute this. We know Alice Walker challenged that in The Color Purple. And Tazaki Shange said, the God is you, is me. I found God in myself. So there have been feminist challenges to what the divine is. And so I'm building on that legacy as well. And when I realized that I was also interrogating the genesis of that kind of divinity, I realized that, oh, if I'm going to come to a close with this book, I'm going to try to come through with a kind of apocalyptic end of the world scenario. So I tried to redefine Revelation and I, I cite from Revelation 12, which is a manifestation of the goddess. And for the overall thesis of your book, why was it important to look to this particular passage in Revelations? While Christians tend to interpret the woman standing on the moon clothed in the sun as the Virgin Mary, I wanted to open that up and say, well, who says it's it's Mary? Why isn't it Oshun? <laughs> who was exiled on the moon <laughs> when folks didn't want to hear her uh, when they were trying to create the earth, the other Orishas? But so she exiles herself to the moon, you know, closes herself in, in golden yellow. And until the other Orishas realize, well, you can't really create the earth without me being there. You can't create life without my honey, without my sensuality, without the the rivers that I bring. That's the source of all the civilization. So I love the idea of looking at the kind of Christian text and then infusing it with our own African worldview and our own African cosmology. And I wanted to also, not just challenging how we look at, you know, the divine, but also to look at how we look at issues like light versus dark. I remind readers that it's in the blackness that God created heaven and earth. It's in the blackness that life started in the ocean depths or in the womb, that all of those are spaces of blackness. It's in the blackness that Harriet Tubman, you know, is able to journey to her freedom when she's following the North Star. So it's like, let's think about why blackness is always this dark thing, this somber, depressive, evil thing, when it could actually be seen as a source for good and a source for creativity and a source for starting over. And so we have to rethink everything of, of how do we look at divinity, look at life and look at blackness and redefine blackness, and which is something that we have to do if we're going to be able to challenge many of the negative ideas about black womanhood. Act two, the road. As our colonial teachings have informed many of our thinkings and our education and people's perspectives and even framing around issues. And so I think that's what's key about your book in that it's based on a premise, this idea, this foundation of the necessity to reimagine and reaffirm not just Black people in general, but African descendant women's experiences and their ways of knowing. Mm -hmm. So I think what's helpful, too, is that you also talk about the Black feminist imagination. So for our listeners, what does it mean to employ a Black feminist imagination? And how do you see that showing up both in your personal personal life and in your work. With the Black feminist imagination, I was trying to articulate ways in which Black women are able to look at the noise, to look at the silences 
and fill in the gaps because that absence is treated as an actual presence that needs our reimagining, whether we're talking about art or literature, our own stories. And so what were some of those epistemological questions that you were asking yourself as you were writing the book? I started asking questions about, so where are we, you know, as Black women? (laughs) And I think that always manifests, whether I'm watching a TV show (laughs) or listening to music and paying attention to, oh, where are we? And then when we do show up, how are we showed? I mean, that's just in my scholarly work. In my personal life, I think that also translates in the same ways in terms of, do I see us when I'm at work? Do I see us when I'm going to any kind of social gathering? How are we included or not included. I think that's important because I think the Black feminist imagination can also extend beyond just Black women. It invites everyone to rethink and imagine our world that can come from a place of being inclusive in terms of being racially inclusive and as well as gender inclusive. Okay, so can you give us an example? In one of my chapters, I look at the history of the Door of No Return on Gorey Island off the coast of Senegal. And what was fascinating to me about that particular history is the way that the history has always been articulated as, you know, the house of slaves, la maison des esclaves. This is where our ancestors were warehoused before they were transported to the Americas. And before they embarked on the slave ships, they would walk through this open doorway that's on the ground floor of the house. And the doorway was called the Door of No Return. But historic, the historical records show that it wasn't quite like that. The house was actually owned by an Afro-European merchant named Nicolas Pepin. Eventually, it was passed down to his daughter, another Afro-European, Anna Colas Pepin. And so the Door of No Return, if there were slaves in that house, they were domestic slaves, not slaves who were where house to come to America. But what is interesting, I discovered an interesting story about one of those domestic slaves who did come to the Americas because she actually was married off to a slave ship captain who had seen her and wanted to have a relationship with her. And her slave owner was like, I can give this slave to you, but I'd rather you marry her and free her. That slave, her name was Venus Johannes. She enters into this marriage with the slave ship captain and she decides she wants to embark on his ship. Because usually a a lot of African women, if they did have these relationships with these European traders and merchants and ship captains, you know, they just had it on, on the continent, those men would leave, kind of like a very temporary type marriage situation. But this Venus wanted to make it real. And she decided to travel with this husband who, by the time he gets over to the Caribbean, sells her into slavery. Yeah, because he had no intention. Yeah, exactly. Look at that story. And she was hoping to return to Africa to go back to Gore Island. And she never was able to. She did eventually sue for her freedom uh, where she was on the island of St. Croix. And she was able to free herself and her children and settle there. But she never was able to return So in that way, the door of no return becomes a kind of truth for her story. But is it true for all stories? When we make it a gendered story rather than a racialized story, then we get all of these complexities of seniors 
and Afro-European women who were having these liaisons with European traders and how they benefited from the slave trade in ways that are just messy, I think, for our history. We like to have a nice, straightforward story about Europeans came to Africa and kidnapped Africans and brought us over to the Americas. And it's like, uh, it's not it's not so straightforward. And the choices that people made, and sometimes you didn't have choices. So yeah, there's a great deal of victimization within that history. But then I think there are also these moments of agency. So for you, in order to bring Black women's stories to the center, that means engaging and grappling with the messiness, even if the messiness has to do with the trauma. And I think that is important because I I remember just this year when I was writing about the Amazon Prime series about them, that horror story based on this you know Black family moving into this white neighborhood, and it's told as a horror story, segregation as a horror story. But what was interesting is the reception among the Black audience who were very resistant to seeing that story, condemning it as trauma porn. And I wondered about well, how do we tell these stories if we're going to reject things outright? And I think we also need to think about what messiness we like because Tyler Perry's stories are messy. Well, I appreciate you hearkening back to and the lore around Venus Johansson because you do talk about that in terms of the seniores and the historical context of what agency looked like and what independence and freedom looked like mm-hmm. within the confines of how people lived and understood and experienced mm-hmm. life. Because I think we can have a very interesting perspective in the 21st century looking to the 18th century way of life and way of being. Mm-hmm. And then also recognizing, too, that when you have folks that go into the historical record, at whatever time in which they're writing from, mm-hmm. they're going to highlight certain truths that are relevant as they see it in the time in which they're living and, and retelling such stories. It's so easy to be able to say, well, you have these African kingdoms that were warring with neighboring kingdoms and then decided we're going to continue to sell these Africans to these Europeans. And, and then people are like, oh, no, we that's too messy because it doesn't fit the narrative that we're trying to promote around white supremacy. But then you have these women who are Afro-European descendants who are, in effect, trying to challenge, but in many ways, they are reifying the same systems that continue to oppress their people and others as well as part of your Black feminist imagination and saying like, look, we need to be able to look at things more holistically Mm -hmm. and endeavor to continue to uncover. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And also to complicate, you know, when white supremacy began, you know, because that also has a history. It didn't always exist. We tend to talk about white supremacy as if white people were always supreme. (laughs) And that's just not true. That developed over time. Even something like slavery, I always hear this again, historical analogies where you'll have someone say, well, everyone was practicing slavery. There was slavery in Africa. Yeah, there was slavery in Europe too. Yeah, but in the Americas, we had chattel slavery. Chattel slavery that became problematic, it was new. That was new. This notion of being perpetually in slavery, slavery as hereditary, hereditary slavery becoming racialized, uh, racializes slavery through women's bodies, that is very specific to American slavery. And so to employ your Black feminist imagination, as you do in your book, we then have to center Black women's experiences because it was these African-descended women. It was their lives. It was their experiences that helped build and sustain nations and the peoples within them. 
Europeans, when they were able to gain a foothold on the continent, uh, many of those men had basically had to rely on women, on African women to keep them alive because they were always getting sick from tropical diseases. And it was their particular liaisons with local African women that em- enabled them to survive, much less survive and thrive and then take over and then be able to dominate and colonize a continent. And then, of course, once they colonize the continent, then they can call the African continent savage, even though it was the very civilization of African women keeping them alive. And not to go too far off track, but that's the complication you are in effect talking about and highlighting throughout your book around these messy relationships and the complications of how is it that we see white supremacy. White supremacy really takes off in the 19th century once we move away from the slave trade and we move away from abolitionism and then we get into what and imperialism. That's when white supremacy really takes off. Obviously, these are the building blocks that have built up to that moment. And that moment only occurs because of the way the colonial encounters enabled whiteness to flourish. And I I think history is great because if you think that white supremacy wasn't always here, then it means then it has to have an ending. Let's talk about the concept of silence. So in the prelude to the new book, you open with a poem which says, she found other ways to speak shrouded in the silence. What are the ways you choose to speak when you're shrouded in the silence? There's always singing. (laughs) There's always just putting things out there. There's singing, there's dancing, there's mumbling, whistling, whatever. I think it's like, what are the alternative ways if people are not hearing what I have to say? And then, of course, there's always writing, because in that same poem, I talk about being able to transcribe the eternal. And that, to me, is what writing is about. Please give us an example. Someone like Toni Morrison has been very instrumental in helping me think about that, especially her playing in the dark. Also, her beloved. I opened the book with an epigraph from Beloved. In the beginning, there were no words. In the beginning was only sound, and they all knew what that sound sounded like. I think it's such a powerful line from that novel. Incidentally, Toni Morrison used to teach at SUNY Albany, and I have her old office. I'm currently in the office she used, and and I believe that's the office she used when she started writing Beloved, it's not surprising to me that once I started writing in lockdown that a Beloved line would come to me. (laughs) In those instances, if and when you are shrouded in silence, your pen is the mighty sword and you're using your writing. And so I like to think about as part of the remembering, naming, claiming, and loving that which is not love, your work highlights African descendant women whose histories are often silenced. So you also discuss visibility and performative politics that help to disrupt these historical silences. What is your process for identifying which women to amplify? Well, that's a good question because there are so many different women I could have written about for this book. But then there were certain women who kept recurring to me in terms of my imagination. Okay, like who? I was struck by the Bwakama ceremony of Haiti. I think it's such an important situational point on the diasporic map, not just because it on the island of Hispaniola, it has this grand narrative in terms of the point of departure for France when Napoleon decides, okay, I'm done with the Americas. I'm going to start colonizing Africa. And then, of course, Haiti 
being like the only successful slave revolt in history, <laughs> you know, has that point for Im- the imagination, even though we know that Haiti has had so many problems and so many upheavals. And I think we understand why, because imagine if Haiti had been able to flourish, it would have been a Wakanda. <laughs> And so that's why I tell the story and started with Haiti, for example, and then looked at some of these other pieces like the Door of No Return or Black Women in Portraiture in terms of European paintings and um, Harriet Tubman, of course. So I'm glad that you raised Harriet Tubman in particular because I think she's a personal sweet spot for you. To get back to, you know, what is your process for identifying these particular women to amplify? Why Harriet? What is it about the betrayal of Harriet's history, her strengths, as well as her vulnerabilities? And you talk about that in one of the chapters as well. Mm -hmm. That resonates with you both scholarly and personally. And I'm going to put this in context in that this year you are the community fellow at the university at Albany's Institute for History and Public engagement, as well as you are guest editing of the Miss Harriet Tubman Bicentennial Project with Miss Magazine. Well, Harriet Tubman, I mean, she's such a major figure. I remember going to one of our annual Underground Railroad conferences that we have in the Capital Region here in New York, and Russell Sage College did a, a special conference on the Underground Railroad. They were highlighting there was an upcoming centennial celebration for Harriet Tubman. She died on March 10th, 19. 19- 13. So in 2013, there was going to be a, a special focus on a number of different milestones. Harriet Tubman's um, centennial death was just one of them. So I actually thought that it would be great if my department in women's studies actually organized a centennial symposium on Harriet Tubman. So I started to do that work and I realized that once you start getting into Harriet Tubman, you just really get drawn in, especially when you start having collaborative friendships with a biographer like Kate Larson and the director, Karen Hill, at the Harriet Tubman Home in Auburn, New York. I've been visiting the Harriet Tubman Home as well as her gravesite. Took my students, I brought them on a field trip, seeing where she settled in freedom. So I actually included a chapter on Harriet Tubman because I thought her history was a little different from the other women that I focused on in the book insofar as Harriet Tubman was able to get real billing in a way that the other women didn't. The others tend to be forgotten in history, whereas Harriet Tubman was remembered and not just remembered. I mean, she even was voted most popular woman in that funding campaign. And ever since, you know, there is this push to get her on a new redesigned $20 bill. And still, what was compelling about her story? What was interesting about that history is I was always curious about how she kind of becomes this quintessential strong Black woman. And when you look at her history, you realize it's much more complicated than just this super action figure that she tends to be. I think we can we can have those mythical stories, but I also think there is a woman underneath that, and that has been what is fascinating to me. I was fascinated by Harriet Tubman, not just in terms of how she's a larger-than-life figure in the culture, but how she herself was also invested in making sure that people knew her story. And I also think that 
as a disabled woman, there are certain vulnerabilities that we don't pay attention to. But she likes to boast that out of all the Underground Railroad conductors, she never lost a passenger. There's a certain faith that she had in God, but also I think there's a lot of faith she had in her, her own abilities that I think is also important. But she, she dies of pneumonia at age 91. So she lived a very long life. I think that's the other cool thing about her. Unlike all the other revolutionary figures that we have in history, whether we're talking about Nat Turner or Toussaint Louverture, she lived to old age. And I think that says a lot about, you know, her abilities to do all of that revolutionary work and still be able to live. That's why I, I find her fascinating. And I'm looking forward to doing this guest editing in, in which I'm rounding up different scholars and Tubman enthusiasts to contribute some piece because next year is her cent bicentennial. Uh, 2013 was the centennial of her death. Uh, 2022 will be the bicentennial of her birth year. And what's your critique of those who have issue with Tubman being on the $20 bill? I tend to disagree with certain Black feminists who are against the redesigned $20 bill, only insofar as I don't see it as a commodification. I see it as recognition. I see it as confirmation of her national memory. I see it as starting the process of recognizing that she she was owed $20. Oh, she died uh, receiving $20 a month <laughs> for that veteran pension she was fighting so hard to get all her life. It's due diligence that we are starting to recognize her and to see her as an actual national figure. And she did a lot. And what's wrong with replacing Andrew Jackson with her? <laughs> Well, that's the messiness yeah. in, in, in terms of the historical context and, and how we can look back in the 21st century upon <laughs> all the events that led up to why she was even doing what she was doing in terms of the Underground Railroad and around the Civil War and what have you. I think what's interesting about storytelling and telling stories as part of the remembering, naming, claiming, and loving, mm -hmm. particularly of African-descended women who whose histories are silenced, is that when we do have these stories, we can always sort of question what are some of the things that still remain unsaid and untold. But it's not until we have people who are doing some of the work and trying to do the uncovering, to do the unsilencing. Harriet Tubman was, was more than just the superhero, mm -hmm. non-sexualized, yeah. Individual. Mm -hmm. Right. That, yeah. you know, and so even for me as a woman also wondering, well, was her choice not to have any biological children, one that she she made with a lot of intentionality? Was mm -hmm. it something that was by circumstance? Was it really a choice? I mean, you know, that's also part of her lore that we don't necessarily know fully because she's not here. And whoever were her biographers, although she had allies, mm -hmm. also framed her yeah. story for her in a way that yeah. was significant to the historical time as well. So there are always these silences that still exist in these stories too. But what I, I get what you're saying is that it's part of the due diligence of scholars like yourself who endeavor to ensure that these stories have a mainstay, that we're still uncovering some of the nuances so that there is this further appreciation and that we can actually love these individuals who were so great, the ones that were quite popular like Harriet Tubman, yeah. as well as those who barely get a footnote in the historical yeah, record. Absolutely. And what is interesting is that beyond the biographies and the biographers, I saw that she was referenced in 
black feminist studies in a very limited way, believe it or not, I saw that she would always be name checked and name dropped in many of black feminist works. But then that would be it. But then you would have different scholars who would wax poetic about Harriet Jacobs and Francis E. W. Harper, who granted they're not as well known as Harriet Tubman in the in the culture. So I appreciate scholars willing to give other women of African descent some love <laughs> and some attention. And that's great. But that's what happens too. She becomes a mythical figure as opposed to we examine her life story as an actual person. And that's what happens when you become a mythical figure and a super action hero figure. You're an idea and less of a person. So I was really fascinated in looking at how we remember her. And how do you see Harriet Tubman in this current project? So how I see Harriet Tubman fitting within my When God Lost Her Tongue narrative is I saw her as representing a different kind of silence. I saw her as being so well known that folks will just project what we want onto her, including because there is a section in the chapter where I try to deconstruct and dismantle a moment when folks were circulating photographs of another woman that they were identifying as young Harriet Tubman. And it's like, that's not young Harriet Tubman. That's actually Sarah Forbes Mineta, who is a Nigerian woman who was a goddaughter to Queen Victoria, but whatever. <laughs> Let's just circulate that and act like it was Harriet Tubman when she was young. And they'll also attribute that she said all kinds of stuff. I think it's one, it's, it's great that we know her name, but I also realized there was a lot in the, in the invocation of the name in which, okay, she we're invoking an idea, but we're not really getting at who the woman is. And that's why I believe it's critically important when it comes to amplifying African descendant personhood that we must honor mm -hmm. the humanity, mm -hmm. right? Those things about the individual person and how they are relatable as the everyday individual. Honoring that humanity that's beyond the victimization. Yes, the 400 years plus of chattel slavery is a significant part of our trauma in our recent histories, but it's not the only thing. Get it, get it. Act three, where we land. In terms of scholarship, what kinds of efforts should scholars engage in to continue to challenge politicians and citizens who are committed to patriotic education? So meaning that those who reject the amplification of African descended and BIPOC narratives and experiences in history, because then that contributes to the same kinds of silences and ways of knowing in which you are challenging and that you're raising with the point of your book. Well, that was one of the reasons why I didn't agree with certain Black feminists who didn't want to see Harriet Tubman on the 20 because I think she represents patriotic education, <laughs> quite frankly. And I think what that term, that was a term that was used by conservative, it was trying to assert that anything that engaged in African-American history was by in, in and of itself unpatriotic. And I think we need to reclaim that word, the way the conservatives have appropriated critical race theory, because it's not their word. <laughs> they actually stole it from the citations of Ibram Kendi in terms of how to be an anti-racist and a legal concept by Derek Bell and Kimberly Crenshaw and others. I think those who represent a progressive side ought to be able to reclaim and appropriate words like patriotic education for our own interests. And even though I know among progressives a need to not want to claim a word like patriotic because it has been so imbued with a kind of um, militarized, imperialist worldview of American culture, I think we can divest this 
divested of of that meaning. Despite those who want to articulate that certain ideas that are being taught is somehow making white people feel bad about themselves, that we really need to to get beyond that. Because teaching the truth, historical truth, is not about making anybody feel bad about themselves. It's about discussing the truth. So Janelle, we've reached a point in the program where this is the time for you to talk about where people can find your book, uh, if they want to learn more about your upcoming talks or future presentations. I know you talked about the Bicentennial that's coming up in 2022. Mm -hmm. Where can they learn more? What's your social media handle? All those things. Uh, My Twitter handle is at jprofessor. And I'm on Facebook as well. So I'll be posting uh, about my book and where you can find it. Uh, Routledge has a link to my book as well as some discounts that they're offering with it. Of course, you can also go on Amazon. It is ready. I do have talk coming up Merrimack College about my book on October 19th. And also I have a feature on the Black Perspectives website. We're so thankful to Janelle Hobson uh, for coming on Talking Journeys of Belonging to Blackness. Be sure to check out her latest book, When God Lost Her Tongue. Thank you so much, Janelle. Thank you again, India, for having me. There you have it. The journey isn't over, but this episode is. Until next time, peace. We are all on our own journeys, and sometimes these journeys take us to different parts of the globe. If you're interested in learning more about Black and Brown people's experiences living across the globe or are contemplating embarking upon your own journey to live in another country, then you should check out the podcast, The Global Chatter, hosted by the Black expat founder, Amanda Bates. Each week, Amanda and her guests talk international mobility, identity, race, career, and more. The Global Chatter is available wherever you listen to podcasts.